Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. For the 23rd time, welcome back to Triple Threat Theater. My name is Ryan Miller. And I'm Joe Daxberger. Dax? Ilzy? Fire it up. Yeah. Fire it up. Fire it up. Fire it up. An episode not about the crow. <laughs> and we already reviewed that on another podcast that Ooh. is lost to time and space. <laughs> is it? I mean, I have copies of it. I don't think it's available on the internet right now. But Oh, uh, man. That was it, a doozy. It's a good one. Five yeah. films starring Brandon Lee. Mm-hmm. Anyone out there in uh, listener land wants to get a hold of that? Good luck. <laughs> Just uh, harass me or Jesse Munoz from the Sidetrack podcast. Maybe we can make it happen. Perfect. Uh, yeah, fire it up. Uh, a tagline of yours and Tony's, I believe. Mm-hmm. Friend Very of the much show so. And yes. first guest host, Tony Sedani. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. This also... A theme that you came up with for this episode. Did I? Uh, yes, you did. Oh, all right. It was there's, not so I. Ma- there's so many I tend to forget. <laughs> so I guess my next question could potentially go unanswered then as to uh, where you came up with this idea or if there was hmm. a particular movie in here that you wanted to do a review of. So you came up with the other two to go along with it just for that purpose or? I'm going to say Yes. So, quickly, I'll say, fire it up. We've got three movies uh, centered around fighting fire. Mm. Uh, The Towering Inferno from 1974. Backdraft, 1991. Mm -hmm. And Ladder 49 from 2004. I had seen one of these. Mm, Interesting. I will tell you, I've seen Backdraft many times. I've seen Ladder 49 once, <laughs> and I'm not even entirely sure I heard of The Towering Inferno. Really? <laughs> so I'm going to say that was the, uh, you know, the one that co- to complete the triplicate. Hmm. I would have thought The Towering Inferno, like I had never seen it before. Mm-hmm. It was something I'd always kind of had an interest in, but just being a fan of movies, I, I would have thought that uh, that was one that anybody would have heard of. And Nope. That's known- just... A little bit about potentially, but I guess yeah, I'm just not a fan of movies enough to have known that one. <laughs> you think you know a person? Yeah, seriously. You have a yes. movie review podcast. <laughs> I know, not on. I mean, not on my radar whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is uh, Towering Inferno is one that I had wanted to see um, for a while. Uh, didn't know a ton of specifics about it, but knew obviously that it was about a high rise building on fire. And just from general knowledge, I knew that it had a star-studded cast, which it does. Mm-hmm. It does indeed. Had seen Backdraft before at some point, only once, and probably a good 10 years ago or more. Okay. And Ladder 49 hardly knew it existed. 
Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Just um, you know, it it's it's it would be weird to say like, oh, I'm not interested in firefighter movies. Like that's not really true. But like nothing, nothing about these kind of stories really draw my interest. I feel in general. Oh, interesting. Like I, I, you know, Ladder Forty Nine. I had heard of it. Uh, didn't really know anything about it. Couldn't have, if you had asked me, like, "Hey, who's in the movie Ladder Forty Nine? Couldn't have told you. But you know, just never, never had any particular interest in it. Mm-hmm. Like I say, Towering Inferno. I think more just the stigma of knowing. Like I knew that O.J. Simpson was in it, and um, and Paul Newman was in it, and a couple of other people. And you know, it's I would say old enough at this point to be considered a classic. I'd say so. And then Backdraft, I just feel like it's one of those like seminal 90s movies. Like to me that movie feels like like Backdraft is to firefighter movies what um Top Gun is say to like Air Force movies. Mm, <laughs> it's like so. the kind of, you know, ridiculous kind of popcorn movie version where mm-hmm. something like Ladder 49 takes itself a little more seriously. Mm-hmm. Backdraft is like I don't know. It's it's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Would you not agree? I wouldn't. I would never pin backdraft as ridiculous. Really? Um, I'd probably leave that to Towering Inferno to be the ridiculous one of the bunch. Really? I mean, just in like believability, sure. Hmm. Uh, Ladder Forty Nine certainly is to to be taken the most seriously, but yeah, I would think like. Towering Inferno is like a classic disaster movie kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, disaster movies tend to have some, you know, over-the-top stuff in them. But I just mean from the point of view of, like, you take a firefighter movie and then you insert all of just, like, the, you know, macho boys club bullshit and just, like, I, I don't know, just, like, all the, uh, the like, stupid troubled relationships between characters and the whole like brother rivalry. It just feels like, you know, the idea of like firefighters cranked up to 11. Like I would say something like Top Gun or Days mm. of Thunder are is kind of what I meant by like ridiculous when it comes mm-hmm. to, to a uh, backdraft. I gotcha. No, I, 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 there's things I could say about that. I'll say for the, the backdraft discussion, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. My thing about ridiculous in that like towering inferno with the giant building and the things that happen to people and things. Mm-hmm. But I see what you mean. Yeah, that's the thing. Like something like towering inferno being like a disaster movie. I feel like it's almost more of like a fantasy film. <laughs> yes. Like it's an imagined circumstance for sure. But whereas backdraft is like a movie about firefighters and obviously ladder forty nine as well. Same kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think we should just tear right into it. All right. Well, as we do, we start at the beginning with The Towering Inferno from 1974. Yeah, Doc. We were getting worried about you. Susan's here, Senator Parker, the mayor and his wife. Everybody wants to know why the world's greatest architect isn't here. Never mind about that. Will Giddings has been pretty badly burned. Will Giddings burned? How? I've already got an ambulance coming, but you better think about getting those people upstairs with you down on the ground floor. What floor? We got a fire here! Well, I think it's under control, but... Well, then, uh, why the urgency? Urgency? 
Hey, Dunk, if that fire was caused by fooky wiring in this building, we could get fires breaking out everywhere. Doug, I think you're overreacting. Now, I feel sorry for Will Giddings, but he'll be taken care of. But I am not going to concern myself with a fire in a storage room on 81 because it can't possibly affect us up here. Not in this building. Now, have someone call me when the fire department arrives. In the meantime, get in your dinner jacket and come up and join the party. Now, come on. I'll get this out of the way quick. I found this fascinating when I was reading about the movie. As did I. (laughs) Apparently... (laughs) This film, I've, I'd never heard of this before, is based on not one, but two books. Uh, there's a book called The Tower that came out in 1973, written by Richard Martin Stern, and another book called The Glass Inferno from 1974, written by Thomas Scorcia and Frank Robinson. And mm-hmm. if you look at those two titles, The Tower and The Glass Inferno, obviously they just took the two and combined them, and that's the yeah. title for the movie. I mean, it worked out pretty good in their favor. Like, what are <laughs> yeah. we going to call this thing? And they're like, oh, wait, it's right here. But the fascinating thing about this is, I guess, The Tower was potentially the more popular of the two books, and so there was a bidding war between Warner Brothers and Fox for the rights to the the book to make it into a movie. And Warner Brothers ended up winning to the tune of $400,000. So Fox kind of was like, fine, and kicked the dirt and bought the rights to the Glass Inferno for Mm -hmm. Mm $300,000. And then uh, the producer of this movie, um, what's his name? Irwin, uh, man, I can't remember his name. Anyway, uh, the producer was like, oh, man, if these two movies both come out around the same time, they'll cannibalize each other's box office. So this dude talked the two studios into joining forces combining their adaptations and just releasing the one film i mean it's a good idea yeah it's just nuts apparently this was the first time that two major studios had ever like you know worked together on a movie before Mm -hmm. and the way that they worked out the deal was um fox would get all of the domestic revenue and warner brothers would get all of the international revenue and that's how it happened (laughs) pretty wild which is just an amazing story (laughs) it's just crazy to think about it is i mean even like reading about and then seeing who's in it and everything and that i believe it was a best picture nominee too you know i was slightly like embarrassed myself like how do i not know this was a thing because it is it is fascinating (laughs) yeah it does. It's like not a th- well. Maybe this kind of thing could happen nowadays. I'm sure there's. There's got to be some other movies we're well aware of that similar. You know, th- uh, companies coming together, perhaps. Yeah, I feel like it, that's potentially a little more common nowadays. But um, just this being like the first instance of it, and like, it's just weird that the two companies both saw like, hey, we need to make a movie about a you know, people trapped in a burning building. And for some reason, like that was the thing that everyone was excited to do and then ended up bringing them together somehow. Mm-hmm. And just reading a little deeper, there's actually elements from both books. Cause you could almost take that premise of like a high rise building. Cause I I've heard of instances before of like a, a movie being adapted from a book. And then you read the synopsis, of the book, and it almost sounds nothing like the movie because they basically just wanted the idea. And we're like, well, if we make a movie about a high-rise building on fire and people trapped inside like a year or two after a book came out with the same premise, we'll get sued. So we'll buy the rights and then we'll just do whatever the hell we want. Mm. But 
this you can actually like pinpoint like specific things that were taken from each book cuz uh i think that it was the the pulley system to like pull people out of the burning building mm-hmm. and into another building mm-hmm. came right from uh the tower and then the whole idea at the end about blowing up the water tanks in the top floor to like rain the water down and put out the fire comes from the glass inferno so it's just like fascinating how like like i wonder what the like, did the people who wrote the books have any say in this? If it's like, hey, you're going to adapt my book, but then you're combining it with somebody else's. It's just, I don't know, a lot of no. weird moving parts in that whole concept. Yeah, I'm pretty sure as soon as the studio buys those rights, it's it's theirs to do what they want. Yeah, so. that's just nuts, though, to think that if a studio could get their hands on, like, two completely different books and then combine them, and then like mm-hmm. they can just do that. If they're, I don't know. The, the mind boggles thinking about these things. but yeah. But I think that's why they pay. I mean, in '74, I'm sure 400 grand for the book rights is pretty crazy. So yeah, considering yeah. the full budget of this movie, I think was 12 million. Mm. So yeah, or no, 14 million. So you know, considering the giant cast and how epic in scope the movie is, and it's like well over two hours long, and just like tons of special effects for back then, and just like tons of like live fires on on set and everything. Oh yeah. And imagine like all the extras and everything like, you know, that budget was only by today's standards, 14 million and you know, $400,000. Well, actually when all is said and done, $700,000 total went into buying the rights to the, the script, which is almost one fourteenth of the budget of the film. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Fascinating. But yeah, I guess uh, for context, if you couldn't gather from what we've already said, um, movie concerns a very tall building opening in San Francisco, like having its grand opening, and uh, they're having an upscale party on the very top floor. How many floors was it supposed to be? Do you remember? Like 120? Uh, yeah, I think 120 or 130, somewhere in there. Something like that. And um, so they're having like way up on one of the top floors, there's this like big fancy like restaurant bar area and it's just like a bunch of you know rich people and celebrities and all dressed to the nines up there having a party and turns out that uh somebody tried to save some money by uh, using inferior wiring in the building and it catches on fire and the movie is much more so than something like the movie skyscraper for example with uh, the rock that came out a couple years ago Mm-hmm. Um, or even something like Die Hard, which is a movie about you know people trapped in a in a building, obviously under different circumstances, uh, terrorists instead of a fire. Uh, less than a plot driven movie where there's like some nefarious plan going on or something like that. This movie, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it and I found fascinating about it is that it is just like a procedural of a disaster movie. Yeah. I was going to say, like, there's lots of characters, mm-hmm. but there's, you know, not much fleshing out or anything. It's just what happens to these people in this building. Yeah, like um, Steve McQueen plays the uh, the fire chief, who's one of the main characters in the movie. But outside of him being a fire chief, you know nothing about him. Not a single thing. Yeah. And like Paul Newman, he plays the architect who designed the building. And Faye Dunaway plays his love interest. And you like you have a couple scenes in the beginning where you get the bare minimum of like what their characters are. Mm-hmm. 
But then, yeah, like, you know, O.J. Simpson plays like the head of security for the building and William Holden plays the the guy who like put the money in to like build the tower and like Fred Astaire is in the movie. It didn't need to be in there at all. Like just a random he plays like a con man who was right. conning this rich old woman who like lives in the tower, I guess. And then she realizes he's a con man and they fall in love for real like not necessary to be in there at all. Like you don't know anything about the backstory of these people. It's just sprinkle like, you know, 15 different types of people into the movie and then watch them try to survive, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. Just like following the firefighters and how they at different points try to do different things to get the people out of the top of the building. And yeah, I don't know. I I thought that was a really interesting aspect of the film that it was so much of a procedural instead of being some like heightened, I guess plot driven. Yeah, story. I mean, I would say there's yeah, it's it's not, or I don't know if it would the right thing to be say it's all plot because because it's just like scene to scene what happens. You know what I mean? Where yeah, I guess the, like no story i guess i don't know kind kind of in just just in that like you know it's interesting like i don't have a ton i don't feel like i don't have a ton of background with movies from the 70s mm-hmm. i feel like it's just like a a, a decade that i'm lacking in my viewership mm-hmm. C- clearly based as well on that i never heard of this movie <laughs> don't beat yourself but, up over it but um just that you know, it's, the feel of this movie is so different than the other two for sure, but just like a lot of movies we even watch on the show, mm-hmm. it's just like that kind of like 70s vibe is just so different. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually pretty excited to, to finally watch this. Well, f- my first thought was like, holy shit, this thing is two hours and 45 minutes <laughs> long. I was like, what? And then I'm pretty excited about the castle because I really like Paul Newman. Mm-hmm. Um I was kind of excited to watch a Steve McQueen movie too, because um, I'm not sure what Steve McQueen movies I've seen. I can't even think of any off the top of my head. I'm almost sure I've seen something. But... The Blob, The Great Escape, Bullet, to name a few. Uh, I have not seen Bullet. He's in the original Blob. Yeah. He. Uh, mm. I'm pretty sure he was well into his 20s at the time, but he played like a high school student. Oh wow. Because back then, I mean, just look at the cast of this movie. Every single character except, obviously, like, the little kids and the uh, the daughter and the jerk husband, uh, uh, son-in-law of the guy who built the tower. Mm-hmm. Like, And they're probably even in their, like, late 20s. Like, nobody is young in this film. <laughs> no, God, no. No. That's yeah, just the way it was that. back then. Like, you know, even the same thing today, like, you know. Tom Holland plays Spider-Man, who's a high school student, but he's in his 20s. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, back then it was just like everybody was like an adult, regardless of what age they were supposed to be playing. Right. I will say, I was very surprised to see OJ in there. Yeah. I was sure he'd only been in the, you know, the naked gun. Mm. Yeah, he was in a couple of other movies. Um, I had no idea. That was just that. That was one of the things. Like I like I said earlier, uh, Ladder Forty Nine. If you had asked me to tell you who was in it, I couldn't have. If you had asked me to name the cast of the Towering Inferno before I watched it, he is just like one of those little random tidbits of information I had in my head. I knew that he was in this movie. Hmm. Yeah, that's wild. 
Yeah. So he's, he looks pretty young. I don't know how old he was, but mm-hmm. um, this movie, man, it it's like it is a good time to watch. It really is because it's it's got a good pace. Yeah, just like that whole procedural vibe. It just it it goes right along. It's like you feel like you're right along with this building being torched. Yeah, I mean, I would relate it to if you go way back into season one of Triple Threat Theater when we talked about All the President's Men mm-hmm. on the episode where we talked about like a bunch of movies about uh, like the media and like newspapers and stuff. And you had like a movie like Network, which coincidentally also stars uh, William Holden and Faye Dunaway, who are both in this. But, um, you know, that movie was about a guy who you know, was like losing his mind and said he was going to kill himself on television. And it was kind of like a, what if let's imagine what the scenario would be. Whereas all the president's men based on a true story was like straight procedural. And I remember saying the same thing about the characters in that movie, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford's characters that, you know, like nothing about them. Yeah. The movie is only concerned with like the details of the Watergate scandal and how they broke it. And, that can be really gripping and fascinating, just like watching skilled people do what they're good at in a situation set up in the mm-hmm. beginning of a film. And I think that this is the same thing, even though this is not based on a true story, it's a little bit more like over the top and preposterous. It's just like, I don't know why Paul Newman as an architect is like the hero who's like running around the building in this, right. aside from the fact that he's played by Paul Newman. Mm-hmm. But, like, just watching him, Steve McQueen, and a bunch of firefighters, like, do their jobs, I just, I find that I really entertaining. And I imagine that yeah. there's movies out there that are similar in structure, but aren't that good. But, like, these are just two really good examples I can think of yeah. because we're talking about this. And I would agree because that really is what it boils down to. It's, you know, scenes change often. Mm-hmm. And, and, Towards the end, it's, you know, sometimes it's just because Steve McQueen's coming into a scene. Like, uh, yeah. you know, he's at a different place in this building and there's a, you know, there's the forward control center set up in the lobby and then they're on the 102nd floor and then they're in the, uh, what did they call that elevator? The, uh, the scenic elevator? <laughs> the scenic elevator. Uh, you know, then there's the, man, the, the part where they're, sending people in that basket to the other skyscraper. I mean, there's a <laughs> yeah. lot going on in this burning building. Yeah, it's um because there's they're not focused on like, you know, character arcs or anything. Mm-hmm. And because there are so many characters you can keep cutting to different people, it's got a really good pace. It never gets hung up on like extended sequences of like Paul Newman telling Faye Dunaway like, you know, yeah. How he feels about her. It's just like, no, shit's more right. important because this right. building is on fire. And yeah, just, you know, the the pace keeps up and th- there is something dangerous that's going on where, I don't know, I feel like a lot of times in like action movies, you know, you can't just have action nonstop the whole time. So right. inevitably there's scenes where it's like the characters just sit and have like a kind of pointless conversation. And as a viewer, I'm like, I'm not really interested in this. Let's get back to the action and this movie doesn't have that it just it's mm-hmm. always every time they solve a problem something else goes wrong and they oh, just yeah. have to keep on problem solving and right. thinking on their feet and mm-hmm. i don't know it makes for an entertaining you know it's long but it feels brisk it's never boring 
Yeah, it's certainly long. I noticed a couple scenes, which I just didn't know if it it's the director style or maybe even something with the 70s. Uh, I don't know if you would have noticed too, but like they would show because of like the procedural nature and like say when they're setting up the baskets or, you know, oddly enough in the climax, they're setting a C4 charges or whatever, mm-hmm. pl- you know, plastic explosive. They show like every step. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, which is not a thing that happens anymore, but they, they showed each guy rigging the line for the basket and everyone going around this column and, you know, they're showing the one guy, like, lining it through the basket itself. Same with the, the plastic explosive. Like, it felt like, you know, two minutes straight of just, like, seeing Steve McQueen's hands, like, molding the explosive <laughs> yeah. to these water tanks, you know? Like, I dig that stuff, though. Like, that's something where, you know, a lot of modern movies, especially when you get... This isn't exactly an action movie, but it's, like, a thriller or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of modern movies, it's just, like, super fucking fast-paced, and every now and then I feel like it would be nice if we could, like, slow down a little bit and um, see more of that kind of stuff, Um, more more detail, and I don't know, I I find that stuff interesting. It's a case-by-case basis, not every movie it's going to work, but, you know, I, I do feel like that is something that you see more often in older films is like, mm-hmm. they just take the time. It's like, Oh, they say like, we're going to have a helicopter, like shoot a line over and then we're going to rig up this thing and you can take people across. They don't just say it and then show you the highlights. You, you right. see them do it. Right. So you have an understanding of how like dangerous it is mm-hmm. and how haphazard and half assed it was put together yeah. and everything. Like, like the modern version of this would have been, you know, uh, Steve McQueen would be like walking out of the room that has the water tanks and he just like tosses the detonator to Paul Newman. Like, okay, I'm all done in there. You know, like yeah. they'd never show for sure. It's very interesting. I don't even hate it. It was just very something I noticed several times. I was like, man, they like not even dragged him out. They just draw out some of these scenes. Just, I guess, cause they can, I don't know. I was very surprised at mm-hmm. it being two hours and 45 minutes and, yeah, there's just like a lot of stages of like, uh, you know, like that one point when they're going to uh, break the windows and they have everybody move everything to like the center of the room. Like it feels like it was unnecessary to add the detail of like in real mm-hmm. life, we would move everything to the center of the room, but they do it. And then right. like later in the movie, when they're about to blow the water tanks and they show like a wide shot of the room, it's like all the tables and chairs and stuff are stacked up in the middle. And I don't know if that was necessary, but weirdly i dig that <laughs> yeah i mean even that scene too they go around almost to like each guy tying themselves to something in the room and then like it inevitably waiting. doesn't help at all every oh, single no. person fucking comes loose when the water pours in which <laughs> right, is hilarious right which right. you know was a good plan in the end um mm-hmm. yeah it was pretty wild because it just you know like i said bouncing from scene to scene it was cra- that observation uh elevator part was nuts because Everything looks fine, and then very quickly it goes all to hell. And the what is it like? The top part of it breaks, and that one lady just falls straight out of the. Yeah, so that was surprising to me. That at times, like I expected some people to die, and I'm like, oh, they're way up in this building. Someone's gonna like fall out of a window or something. But there were a couple of times where just like characters brutally mm-hmm. bit, and like you know just bit the dust. Yeah. <laughs> like I mean the. 
the one guy that like deserved it, the son-in-law there. Yeah. You know, he got his, which was nice. Yeah, you expect that. Yeah, you expect that. Even how it went down, I was like, oh, that's that's pretty heavy. But but like um uh up in that uh that top level where like the fancy party was going on where everybody's trapped, there's the bartender who like they ask him for help once or twice and when they bring in the kids who were rescued, he's like talking to them and being all friendly and giving them milkshakes and things and like a couple times during the movie he's like a helpful guy and he's just like nice dude. So I did not expect when the water comes crashing in for them to show the water knocks over a statue and it lands on him and crushes him <laughs> yes, to death and he just yes. like dies and spits blood. Like yeah. I was not expecting that and you know probably because I it has this feeling of like despite the procedural nature it's like a kind of corny old 70s movie. Mhm. But at times it really is like, oh, we're trying to show like the tragic realism of a disaster like this. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, so it's got, it's, the body count is there for sure. Yeah. They say at the end that uh, less than 200 people died. But, you know, still, I didn't think that it would be nearly that many. I mean, there's the part towards the beginning where they warn them not to use that one elevator anymore because the fire could trigger the elevator to stop. Mm-hmm. And so the firefighters are fighting this fire and all of a sudden the elevator doors open and the fire engulfs the elevator and then right. the doors close and the elevator goes back up to the top floor. And when it opens, it's just charred bodies and one guy on fire stumbles out and falls on the ground. And I was right. like, Oh my God, that was the first part where I was like, Oh, this is brutal. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, uh, the scenic elevator part that, uh, the woman that just like when it like kind of, stops working and it tilts forward and one person falls out and just Mm -hmm. falls to her death. Yeah. Um, that was the love interest. The like nice old lady with a cat, uh, that Fred Astaire was just like, you know, they pledged their love to one another and he was like, I'll see you on the bottom. Uh, and she just falls to her death. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. And didn't see that one coming. Um, Robert Wagner's character and his love interest, like early in the movie, you think, oh, they're going to be important characters because they show them a couple times and they like, they decide they're going to go to the party late. So they stay and they have sex. And he told his secretary to like turn off the phone so they wouldn't be interrupted. And then when they're done getting it on, they go to leave and the building's on fire. And he's like, oh, I'll, I'll go get help. Um, I used to be able to run like I, I used to run relay races in high school so I can run right through this fire. So he puts like a, a robe over his head and runs into the fire and just burns to death. And then <laughs> it shows her just like choking on smoke in their like their room. And I'm thinking, oh, is she just going to like asphyxiate? And then she picks up a chair to like break the glass of the window so that she can get some fresh air. And of course, all that does when she breaks the glass, the oxygen rushes in and mm. the fire just like blows up the room yeah. and launches her out the window. Like, yeah, that's a backdraft right there, Mills. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating mix of like <laughs> that like corny old school filmmaking. Cause this was mm-hmm. 70s, but this honestly even feels like with some of the cast, like Fred Astaire it feels like an even more old timey, like classic Hollywood kind of movie than some of the other seventies films that you think of. But it's like that old school Hollywood corniness mixed with sometimes very blunt violence. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, what's nice about this in, in backdraft too, like 
It's before computers, so they were just burning stuff left and right mm-hmm. for real. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to watch and like, you know, in honestly all three of these movies, you know, during intense fire sequences, there were times where I was like, well, this obviously doesn't feel that real or it's like, oh, there's just little bits of fire scattered around the room. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. like a full blaze all the time or whatever, but yeah, knowing that in this instance it was all just like hands-on effects guys and, you know, actors putting their lives in the hands of the, you know, the crew, which is, I mean, I don't know, that does add something or can add something to a movie for me. I think so. I mean, they, there was like early on, they show like near the elevators and there's like a couple firefighters are like in this one hallway that's, you know, engulfed in flames. And then the, the ceiling collapses. Mm -hmm. And I was like, pretty sure they just dropped a burning ceiling on those guys for real yeah you know? yeah because there were pieces of it that were on fire and i remember thinking the same thing like wow that's that's all real <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah they can't fake that one in camera yeah. you know they just gotta drop some burning stuff on people yeah that's something uh between these three movies a lot of full body burns <laughs> oh yeah 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 you got that right yeah i uh i thoroughly enjoyed this movie yeah it's a good time you know it's not like Again, it's not the most amazing story in the world, but just as a you know visceral experience while watching it, yeah, it's entertaining the whole time. It was, and then when you think, because we've seen you know between the two of us, not even so much on the show, but like plenty of disaster movies. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to not, you know, just see something different that wasn't like it wasn't The Rock trying to save his daughter in San Andreas, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, or uh, God, what's that horrible? Um, John Cusack one. Um, John Cusack disaster. Was it 2012? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so that's like another one. That's like know, the like, disaster movie of all disaster movies. Oh, God, they're just so bad. But I mean, those are cool, but there's plenty of good ones. Don't get me wrong. But it's just this had that different feeling. Like, yeah. Tell me if this makes sense. Like, most of the ones, like the ones you were just naming, it's like an action movie version of a disaster film where this felt more like a drama movie version of a disaster film because um, yeah, like, it's could... not like all about you know you, you know you you have a character the floor falls away and they look down and you see like this long shot down and then they look up and they do this incredible unrealistic jump that they'd never be able to do mm-hmm. and yeah like, no, that's true it's much more realistic like there's bits like where uh steve mcqueen is trying to rescue the woman and the two kids and they're in the uh the stairway when the uh gas line bursts and uh Steve McQueen apparently that was actually him uh doing his own stunt or not Steve McQueen uh, Paul Newman doing his own stunt where he like is hanging from that mangled stairway railing and he's okay. like climbing up and down it like yep. that's pretty extreme when you take the, the you know context sure. of the fact that he's at the top of this like extremely long drop that he could fall down, but mm-hmm. it's like, you know, a realistic circumstance. It's not like, you know, him having to do an inhuman act, like jumping across a stupid right. big gap. Like I was talking about or something. I feel like, like part of it being like the big ensemble cast and there's not like one main star, like no one's like there in the hero role mm-hmm. completely that I feel like I would agree factors into like more of a, 
drama disaster than an action disaster. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the uh, no lead character thing. Did you read about the behind the scenes with Paul Newman and Steve McQueen? What I saw, I saw a lot of, a lot talking about the diagonal names and photos. Which I noticed while I was watching the credits for the movie. And I was like, so like, you know, it's like a cast list. And above the cast list, the two biggest actors in the movie, Steve McQueen and Paul Newman, are listed side by side. But then Paul Newman's name is on the on the right of the screen, but it's a little higher. And Steve McQueen's is on the left of the screen, but it's a little lower. And I was like, that's weird. It almost looks like uh, they they didn't line the names up properly by accident. It just looked wrong to me. Like I expected mm-hmm. it to be more like perfect looking because it's the credits for like a big budget movie. Mm-hmm. But apparently, <laughs> it seems like this used to happen a lot more than nowadays in like old school Hollywood. They both wanted top billing. And so the compromise was like if you put the names exactly side by side, then it would seem like Steve McQueen got top billing because since we read left to right, you would be seeing his name first. <laughs> so by bumping Paul Newman's name up, it's on the right hand side. So they're technically, depending on how you read it, top to bottom, Paul Newman's name comes first. And if you read it left to right, Steve McQueen's name comes first. And that was their compromise. Because depending on how you read it, either one could be the top billed actor, which is fucking insane. Yeah. Like, who cares about if one guy's name is an inch higher than the other one? Apparently that was a big deal, though. And uh, going along with that, Steve McQueen made... uh, a big stink about he would like only do the film like co-lead with Paul Newman if they literally had the exact same number of lines of dialogue in the movie. Wow. And at the end of the day, after they edited the film, uh, Paul Newman ended up with 12 more lines of dialogue than Steve McQueen. And Steve McQueen was apparently very pissed off about this. (laughs) Jeez. Just talk about an e- ego. I know. Just insane. Just like, I don't know. Uh, times were different, I guess, back then to be like a very a big Hollywood star. It's that's weird to me. But I mean, I know all that like billing stuff and all that top billing, all that counts now. But I don't feel like you'd ever see something as ludicrous as like who's diagonal to what side of the screen, you know? Yeah. They got that part figured out. The one other like classic instance of this I remember hearing about again with Paul Newman was uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember exactly how it shook out, but I know I've heard before that uh, there was a big to do about who would technically get top billing mm. in that movie because you know they share the leads and they're both they were both huge names at the time. But right, yeah, I don't know. Just weird, yeah. fascinating, old school Hollywood I, stuff. I wonder how much of it's like actors versus like their agents or something too. Mm, you know, yeah, I'd be I'd be curious how, if that factors in at all. It could. It it sounds like Steve McQueen actually had a pretty big ego about this though, like with the whole <laughs> yeah. lines of dialogue. Uh huh. Oh God. Yeah, that's. Yeah now now I just want to read about the making of the Towering Inferno. Yeah. You and me both, because uh, <laughs> the little bit that I read was fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, anything else to say about this one before yeah. we move on? I think it's uh, no. I think we're ready to rock. All right. Uh, next up on the docket, we have Backdraft from 1991. 
In a word, Brian, what is this job all about? Fire. across the door and up across the ceiling not because of the physics of flammable liquids but because it wants to some guys on this job fire wrongs them makes them fight it on its level but the only way to truly kill it is to love it a little just like Ronald well I'll just tell you two Chicago firefighter brothers who don't get along have to work together while a dangerous arsonist is on the loose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love me an IMDb synopsis. <laughs> and see, that is exactly the thing. That would be the distinction to me. Like a firefighter disaster movie action film versus just like a drama because this one has a villain, you know? Like the uh, like yeah. Towering oh, Inferno yeah. had the asshole son-in-law who like didn't build the building up to code or whatever. And he accidentally caused the whole thing and he was a jerk and you wanted to see him die. But this has like, you know, we're firefighters saving lives, but also there's a criminal we're trying to catch. Right. right. Yeah. Like, uh, like the, the guy from towering Inferno just, I think that probably just counts as manslaughter where backdrafts got straight murder. (laughs) Yeah. So you said you'd seen this movie many times before. I have. This was, uh, this was a probably yeah I'd say this was definitely on VHS in the Daxberger household mm-hmm. growing up. So does that mean that you are a fan of this film? Uh, indeed, yes, I am a fan. You know, I love Kurt Russell. Well, who so doesn't? this uh, this is a this this movie certainly is a factor. Yeah, for me, um, yeah, this movie is like highly enjoyable for me. I do find I mean it is certainly more in the action bent than the towering inferno but this just kind of feels more i guess you could even say like conventional movie where it's the characters with backstories and dramas and Mm -hmm. you know going about their lives and then there's the you know the killer angle so yeah this one just in the midst of everything has a lot of like typical like action thriller Mm -hmm. movie tropes and things in it right I had only seen it the once before years ago, probably like 10 to 15 years ago. I don't really remember what I thought about it. I was looking forward to rewatching this one because I do know that it has kind of that stigma of like, you know, a little bit sillier action movie, which you know is like right in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. I was not in love with this on a rewatch. It feels like most of the beginning of the movie just deals with uh, William Baldwin as the lead character. It is William, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's just a lot of the beginning is like William Baldwin coming back to town and, you know, trying to prove himself and his brother doesn't believe that he has what it takes and, you know, the camaraderie of the group and everything. And there's you know, a little bit of mention of the whole arson thing, but it doesn't really feel like that takes full 
precedence in the film until the second half or maybe even the final act to me. Would you agree with that? Or um, I'd say it's more like second half probably because it does, you know, the first, well, after like the cold opening, which I love, the first fire you see is part of the yeah the revenge plot. So, well, it I feels mean, like, so the the villain in the movie or, you know, the person committing the arson is trying to get revenge on these four guys. And uh-huh. so he's, you know, creating purposefully creating backdrafts to kill them and like trying to hide how he is starting the fires. And you're right, very early in the movie, one of the first fires that they attend to is the first guy getting assassinated. And then it feels like after that, for a long time, there's no movement with that plot. It feels to me, and I don't know if this is the case, but it feels to me based on the montage nature of the movie and we see like training sequences in there and it feels like time is passing and William Baldwin's character is like getting his feet wet. It feels like weeks, if not a month or three pass before the second person is killed by the serial killer or whatever the arsonist. So it feels like that plot is kind of on the back burner. And it doesn't, it's not really until right around the time of that second attack that the, the, that plot really starts to take over because at that point, William Baldwin goes and gets the job with Robert De Niro. And now he's officially investigating the crime where previously it had just been kind of happening elsewhere. Yeah. yeah I mean, they, I think they have to spend the time to, you know, that initial, there's that initial murder and then they kind of, they flesh out the the brothers and their issues, and then you know William Baldwin's coming back to town. So there's the ex girlfriend is there, and mm-hmm. there is a I think a pretty good training montage in there. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I think at the end of the day, like where this movie's concerned, I'm like more into that character stuff than I am like the you know actual plot of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know, I just enjoyed like. William Baldwin coming back to town and meeting back up with the girl and, you know, his relationship stuff with his brother. And then all of a sudden in the second half, it's like, oh, my brother could be the arsonist. And um, I was more into like the casual, goofy fun of the first half of the movie. And then when it gets serious in the second half and by the the climax, the like, you know, pseudo fight scene in the burning building where people Mm -hmm. are dangling and they do the classic like, the the bad guy is about to fall to his death and the good guy grabs him by the hand and then the bad guy's like just let me go and he's like if you go I'm going with you is like mm-hmm. I don't know that's where the movie like goes a little over the top and you go we go Milzy that's yeah that's that's the way it goes <laughs> yeah I mean I uh have not seen this one in a while but like I said I've seen it so many times but I just I enjoyed it just as much as I always have I think watching it this time yeah I think because it's one of those things which I guess could be a factor when we talk about Ladder 49, but, you know, that's a movie about one guy's life where Backdraft could be that too. It could just be this brother, you know, these yeah, two brothers it, trying to work arson. together. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I enjoy the arson stuff because it's that, again, is tied into the family to a point. Mm-hmm. So I just can't help but wonder if it like it almost feels like two movies to me that are kind of jammed together. Because, and I don't know if I'm nuts here, but that the whole arson thing just feels like 
it's largely left until the second half of the movie. And it feels like I'm by the time they get into it, I'm like more invested in what else is going on. And it almost feels kind of tacked on to me in the second half. And I know that it's like the focus of the movie, but this movie is pretty long, right? It's over two hours. Um, two hours, 17. And I mean, it feels like a good long time, like the better part of an hour before William Baldwin becomes like an investigator with Robert De Niro and they actually get on the case. And so, I don't know, by the time that stuff kicks in, it's like, oh, I'm already enjoying this other movie and now you're trying to turn it into something else. Is kind of the way I feel about it. Hey, I don't know. I don't see it that way, but, you know, if, uh, to me it's just like first act stuff where they're setting yeah. everything up and then second act kicks in is when it's, you know, it's back to... You know, these backdrafts, like what the movie's about. And I, I like how William Baldwin kind of goes along discovering even it's like a good way of how they show you even like what a backdraft is when yeah. De Niro's like showing him with the trash can. Like, the, mm-hmm. I mean, that, I like that's how that you stuff, do it in movies you know? is like it's the classic, uh, you know, Guillermo del Toro's first Hellboy movie example where they invent that character that what's his name plays generic white guy Mm -hmm. to be the audience so that they have a way to introduce you to the world sure which honestly is uh is a mark against that movie for me but we won't get into that here (laughs) yeah i mean i don't yeah this is different but yeah yeah i mean having your main character learning and giving you an opportunity to learn along with them is you know is how you do that stuff because otherwise people would be like Mm -hmm. back back draft what is that right yeah so i think but i guess a simple way without like digging into the details too much to explain my feelings on the movie is like to simplify what I've already said. I was like really enjoying it in the beginning. And then in the second half, it kind of just felt like a little tedious. And I like was losing interest when it got more into the like plot, I guess Hmm. just for whatever reason that that's kind of how I felt. So in the second half of the movie, I felt a little, little less invested and, and I mean, the ending is just so like ridiculous and over the top, like with a that fight in the burning building or whatever. I mean, yeah. And when when you got, well, they somehow like don't die when the the roof collapses on this enormous building, <laughs> and then like a beat, you know, pretty quickly turns into an axe fight in mm-hmm. the middle of the fire. But yeah, you know, I'm okay with. I mean, I lo- I think it looks great, like special effects wise. I mean, they've got. You know, big real fires in this one, especially mm-hmm. in the the climax. Yeah, um, I mean, like this. Just to if you don't know what kind of movie this is, like this is the film that they made a Universal Studios attraction about, like where right. it simulated being inside of a fire. Yeah, and that just is like that. I feel like that just tells you the kind of movie this is. Like this is a big mainstream Hollywood action adventure oh, yeah. firefighter. <laughs> yeah, thing. Like I said, I um I've always loved the cold opening, which um where Kurt Russell like all, plays his own dad. Kurt Russell plays his own dad, and you know it's like young, you know uh, the kid playing William Baldwin, but just that it's kind of long. You know, like you know you're not sure what to expect, and mm-hmm. then it gets pretty somber. But yeah, it's a I've cool. Always loved that. I love that opening idea as a premise and just like a character thing for William Baldwin's character that you know when he was a kid. Uh, he watched his father die and a photographer was there and took a picture of him and it became like this famous photo on the cover of time or life magazine or whatever, or time magazine, Mm -hmm. whichever one it was life, I think. And then like that as a, 
like a backstory thing for his character. Like people know about him because of that, and mm-hmm. which yeah plays into the little uh, Donald Sutherland cameo, which I mm. also love. Now, see, that's another thing where I think I would take issue with it. Like, it's an element that they drop on you in the middle to the latter half of the movie with uh, Donald Sutherland, where they basically try to do, what if Silence of the Lambs was a firefighter movie? So he's like their Hannibal Lecter, where he's a criminal who knows about fire. So just like Hannibal Lecter was a criminal who knew about, like, criminals they go to him to like get his insight on this case they're investigating and William Baldwin ends up going to Donald Sutherland to like help him crack the case and figure out mm-hmm. it just I don't know it it's it feels like that part of the movie didn't really need to be there like there was probably an easier way he could have just figured out some kind of connection and you could have lost the whole like Robert De Niro going to the the hearing for his parole and all that See, stuff I love that part I would not take that away in any instance myself yeah it just it doesn't feel important or necessary and by the time you know like i say i was a little less interested in the second half and was kind of ready for it to wrap up like that's probably like 10 to 15 minutes you could cut out of the movie right there i, I understand if you if you like it from many repeated yeah. viewings and it's just part of the movie for you but for me i'm like eh, it feels unnecessary I mean, I mean yeah if you if you cut out both of those scenes i guess but i mean i think it's just it's it's great to watch a De Niro playing off of Donald Sutherland. You know, I like that scene mm-hmm. quite a bit. So, you know, they use it as a plot device, like you said, to help him out, help uh, William Baldwin figure it out later. But yeah, yeah, I have zero issue with that. It's got a good. Uh, this movie's got a good De Niro freak out, which you know I'm a fan of. <laughs> which part are you specifically thinking of? That's when uh, William Baldwin first goes to meet him, and he's talking to that like one random firefighter. And he's talking about like, oh, he's kind of just, he starts screaming at the guy because he like blew, he like broke open a window trying to be a hero. Oh, right. But all he did was like feed oxygen to that fire. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's when you, you know, well, actually you see De Niro early, like after the first fire, but when you kind of see him again, when William Baldwin's going to work with him, so when you get that, that good De Niro freak out. <laughs> Feels a... Uh... Now, like, I don't know the exact time frame here, but, like, uh, Goodfellas was early 90s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Goodfellas was 90, I think. And then Casino would have been after that, so, like, yeah. more mid-90s. Um, Casino's, like, 93 or 94, I think. It feels a little weird to me that at this point in his career, Bobby De Niro would have been like, yeah, I'll play, like, fifth fiddle or whatever in this movie, like, kind of a small part in what feels like, especially when they were making it, like not necessarily the most prestigious movie. Mm-hmm. It seems like an unusual choice for him. I mean, I think he, you know, brings the movie up a bit. He has some clout and, you know, adds something to it for sure. Yeah. But um, seems like a little bit of a weird choice to me for him at this, at this point in time. Especially when you look at like, you know, Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, Matt Dillon, Val Kilmer... Alec Baldwin all turned down the lead in this movie. And then Bobby De Niro was like, oh, sure, I'll take this, you know, third build part. Yeah. Oh. I know it's kind of similar because you'd call it the same thing for like Copland, which was only a few years later, too. Mm, yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I like Copland. I got to watch oh, that's that great. again. <laughs> great movie. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd be curious. Like, 
Because even like I know, because um, Ron Howard directed it, mm-hmm. but I think he'd only done a couple movies up until this. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, who knows if like that's a factor? I don't, you know, I don't know. I'd be curious, but I'm glad he's in there. I know that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the casting, so as I said, Alec Baldwin turned down the lead, but then he recommended his brother for the role, and I guess that's how he got it. But um, I thought this was kind of interesting. So. Apparently, it came down to William Baldwin and Brad Pitt to play the lead. And William Baldwin, I guess because of his brother Alex's recommendation, won out over Brad Pitt. Also, Brad Pitt at this time wasn't like, you know, household name status yet. That wouldn't have been until a year or two later with like Legends of the Fall and uh, uh, Interview with Thelma and Louise was probably after this, too. This is the funny thing. So William Baldwin was originally cast in Brad Pitt's role in Thelma and Louise. Mm -hmm. And then he got the lead in this movie. So he had to break out of his contract for Thelma and Louise. And then Brad Pitt, who lost the role of the lead in Backdraft, then got the role that uh, William Baldwin was supposed to play in Thelma and Louise. And that was like one of his first big things. That people took notice of him for wow. for walking around the movie with his shirt off the whole time. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, I just one of those little behind the scenes Hollywood stories that you know it was on IMDb. Who the hell knows if it's true? But it, you know, timing checks out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say I continue to be a Backdraft fan. I I'll be honest, I'm a little surprised your how you feel about it, but teach his own. Yeah, um, you know, I don't hate the movie or anything. Just uh not over the moon about it um mm-hmm. like i say i don't i'd only seen it the once before i don't remember really how i felt back then but it, this definitely wasn't a movie where i saw it and i was like oh i need to own that or or anything mm-hmm. and like you know who the hell knows if or when i ever would have watched it again if it weren't for this show which is why i love this show right perfect but um yeah, I don't know. It's It's got an interesting cast, even though I feel like Donald Sutherland doesn't need to be in there. You know, you got him, you got Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, J.T. Walsh. Yeah. Rest you know, in peace. always like, always uh, plays a good villain. Mm-hmm. Scott Glenn, your buddy from Daredevil, mm-hmm. who played Stick. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, so I mean, I'd say it's a good ensemble cast here, too. Mm-hmm. Now, this is one of those instances of like, so William Baldwin. I always get the fucking Baldwin brothers mixed up. Uh-huh. But William Baldwin is the lead in this movie, which was a pretty big movie. I mean, like I say, they made a fucking Universal Studios attraction out of it. Budget of $40 million, Box office on this was $152 million. That's a pretty good return on investment in 1991. Sure. You know, co-starred in this movie with Kurt Russell, Robert De Niro, Donald Sutherland. And, um, like, what... Okay, like, can you? How do you perceive his performance in this movie? Do you think he's good? Do you think he's just okay? Do you think he's bad? Um, I'd say he's fine. You know, I'm kind enough. of the same. Like, he was he. You know, he's an attractive young guy in this, and he, you know, lead role. I think he did fine in it. You know, he had a good supporting mm-hmm. cast to help him. But like, how does this guy play the lead in Backdraft? Score this role. Play this role. Movie's popular, and then goes on to do like nothing. Yeah, I'm actually like looking at his... uh... I looked through his IMDb list, and the only things that jumped out at me, and these aren't like huge deals, by the way. They're just like genre movies that I am fond of. 
but flatliners and virus are like the only things that jumped out to me. Yeah, same here. I mean, except for Backdraft Two, which came out this year, twenty nineteen. Yeah, so I saw that too. Um, I know for whatever reason, I knew Fair Game was a movie with Cindy, him and Cindy Crawford. Mm. See, because I've seen that. I've seen that poster before. I don't know that one. Uh, I have no idea what it's about, but. Yeah, I don't know if it's a thing with Baldwin Brothers, too. Like, keep a track of who's been in what. But I would have been sure he was in more than just these couple of genre flicks and then Backdraft. Yeah. Like Backdraft I mean, he's, he's obviously been working just like no oh, titles yeah. that jump off the the, the screen. No. And you're like, oh, yeah, that one. Like, this would be the one. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm surprised, too. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Because I know, like, Daniel Baldwin... I love the movie John Carpenter's Vampires, and he's in that. Couldn't tell you what else he's done. And then is it Stephen Baldwin, who I feel like is the second most successful one, where he was in Usual Suspects and, Mm -hmm. of all things, played Barney Rubble in, was it the second Flintstones live-action movie, Viva Rock Vegas? If you say so, friend. He's been in a couple of other things. Uh Um, But... Yeah, William Baldwin. I don't know. I'm just I'm surprised because I don't perceive him as being bad in this. You know, he's, you know, very. No, I don't think he's bad. I would definitely was not bad in this. I mean, he shows like a range, you know, uh, acting range for sure. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't have like that Tom Cruise charisma, but. No. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's a little weird that after Backdraft, like how did he not have like some other huge movie after this that maybe turned out to be a flop, but like how did he not have the follow-up movie to Backdraft? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's actually even interesting, like with the charisma, like it actually fits this role because he's kind of like the... Loner? Like the loner, not so much like a clown, but he's like he's not respected and, you know, even leaves. Like it's... That's what's kind of even... When we open the show and you're talking about like the... Like the guys club with the how this firefighting stuff is, mm-hmm. and it's like it's because it's funny in the like first scene of the movie where his buddy's like, "I got engine 17, you know, he's like pumping his fist, like "Yeah!" like <laughs> and everyone's like you know hooting and hollering for him and stuff. Like, yeah, that plays it's like the like the clubhouse feeling of it. So I feel like all the other all the guys that are already in engine 17. Those are like the charismatic ones where. William Baldwin like never like gets a footing mm-hmm. until like the very end. Yeah. So it actually would make sense for him to kind of be a little more meek. Mm-hmm. There will be some stark contrast with the whole, you know, boys club of firefighters. Once we get to ladder 49 in a minute mm-hmm. <laughs> between mm-hmm. that and this. Right. That said, do you have anything else uh, to say about Backdraft? I don't. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's uh, get on to it. One other thing I guess I'll say real quick is, uh, the writer of this movie, who did come back to write Backdraft 2, which, again, came out this year and reteams William Baldwin and Donald Sutherland, of all characters, mm. comes back for it. The dude who wrote both Backdraft movies also wrote Highlander. So I guess he created Highlander? Oh. Because he wrote okay. the first film, and I imagine that that was an original idea from him. But Interesting. Yeah. Also did The Prophecy with Christopher Walken, which has like six sequels. But Did he have anything to do with uh, Highlander Geist? Uh, couldn't tell you. <laughs> mm. All right. Moving You'll have to on, do your I own guess. research on that one. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Uh, third and final film, we have Ladder 49 from 2004. Uh, right down here. Use this one. 
Chris? Yeah. You Catholic? Yeah. Most of the guys are. Uh, we have a thing here. A priest comes around twice a year. We all go to confession. Nice job, you need it. When you get enough fires, you find God. Good confession, Nelson. Bless me, Father. Uh, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been uh, seven years since my last confession. Seven years is a long time. Yes, Father. All right, where do we start? Theft? Robbery, fraud, taxes? Well, you know. Taxes? Always taxes. How about sex? Impure thoughts? Uh, well, yes, quite a bit. Try to cut back. Are you married? No. Are you a virgin? <laughs> no, Father. Well, you think it's funny to fornicate with loose women? What? Wait a minute. No, you wait a minute. <laughs> hey, you come across any more loose women, you let me know, all right? Tommy Drake, how you doing? Jack Parsons. Hey, man, right. Don Middleton. Good to meet you. Dennis Gaitlin. Hey. My older and, as you can see, uglier brother. <laughs> Frank McKenney. Father, Lenny Richter. Father, <laughs> Lenny Richter. Pleasure to meet you. Good sport. And uh, I guess quick synopsis for this one is it is pretty much just a rookie joins the fire department. You know, there's the hazing. There's the camaraderie between the guys. You know, main character, Joaquin Phoenix, who's the rookie, meets a girl. You see their relationship blossom. Time jumps. Now they're married. Now they have kids. And all the while, they're interspersing this um, like framing device, where the movie actually opens with him in like a a burning warehouse, and uh, he rescues a guy, and in doing so, like puts himself in danger and ends up trapped in a precarious situation inside this building. And every now and then, throughout the film, it's almost like an episode of Lost, where they'll cut back in an important moment mm-hmm. in his life to the the you know now nowadays when he is trapped in this building and they're trying to rescue him correct I, the thing i will say since we were just talking about it with um with backdraft like what i was saying before about how that movie feels like the over the top it's almost like you know you got navy seals the people and then you have navy seals the movie and navy seals the movie is completely ridiculous and over the top with just like the the crazy golfing scene and everything top gun <laughs> right. same thing with like the volleyball scene and i feel like a good comparison would be so ladder 49 is pretty much a straight up drama it's just like a like a life story the trials and tribulations of this guy's life and the you know his relationships with his you know coworkers and his wife and his kids but at the beginning of the movie you have like little bits of hazing with uh, him and his buddies Uh, who work at the fire department, but, you know, you get that camaraderie, it all feels real, versus in Backdraft, it's like when William Baldwin first shows back up, his buddies just on the street at night outside of a bar, just like hose him down with a fire hose, and then he like chases after him and jumps on him, and they're like, you know, roughhousing in the street, and that's like the difference to me that shows like how over-the-top and silly Backdraft is versus this movie is like very much taken seriously. Hmm. Okay, <laughs> that's just uh, that's that's how I see the two movies mm-hmm. comparatively. 
But uh, yeah, what did you. you think of uh, Ladder Forty Nine? Um, I I don't like the framing device of you know starting out with the the fire scene and then like doing the flashbacks. Mm-hmm. I I just don't care for that. I don't know if I ever usually even liked that kind of thing. But as I don't remember much from watching, I know I've seen it before. But I I didn't even re- I remembered it was Walking Phoenix. I didn't remember like John Travolta was in it or anything. I think that that was like a major thing that stuck out to me was that it just I think it would have just worked a lot better for me if it just was chronological even because mm-hmm. I don't think like the that action scene or him getting trapped was like that compelling of a thing that they needed to open with mm-hmm. you know I just feel like it would have been more it would have felt more emotional to me I think watching him throughout his life build up to that if that's the way they wanted to go yeah you know. Like showing his entire life. I mean, it's weird. It's like sometimes I feel like, you know, we've talked about movies before where it just feels like just a group of scenes, you know, without having a story where I could, you could say, yes, the story's this guy's life, but. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a montage like of his entire life, basically. Right. Which maybe, maybe regardless of being firefighter or not or whatever, I just don't know if that's even like that compelling of a, you know, uh, structure for me i think yeah it's like i mean at the in, on one hand if you take out the framing device it's just you're watching a dramatic story about a guy who joins the fire department falls in love you know has some relationship struggles and then presuming the movie would end the same way with him spoiler alert dying like imagine if they didn't have that like plot device in there where it keeps cutting back to the to the now here and now with him in danger you watch the movie and it's just like normal drama relationship whatever 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 and then the end of the movie they just get called on this job and then you basically see that whole story that plays out in segments throughout the movie play out at the end and then just watch him die something about that almost feels like it would have been too jarring or something like i honestly wasn't expecting him to die the whole time like i thought for sure that they'd save him right but i think it tempers like the eventual fate of him because you're seeing it interspersed throughout the movie and it's like every now and then you cut back and you're like back in it instead of just backloading the entire end of the movie with like a struggle that eventually ends in his death Mm mm-hmm yeah, I, I think that's just stronger overall for me. I just yeah. like I I don't like I like you know where the build up like showing him like falling in love with his wife and all that stuff like I like all that like all the like like you said this is more of a straight drama mm-hmm. where I would just I would just feel like it would that that climax would be like that much more like heart wrenching to me mm. if we just saw like the course of his life. It almost feels to me like. Uh... Like the the framing device gives the movie purpose. Like it opens with him like falling and being trapped and then they're like, we need to get in there and help him. Cut to, and now it's like, oh, I know why I'm watching this guy's story because we're going to go back and see what happens with that. Otherwise, like, you know, not, I liked the movie overall. I liked the story. I liked the characters. It's just like, there is no... There's no bad guy that they're trying to catch, and there's no, like, it's it's not a nonstop, like, 
Oh yeah, I mean, overnight, I mean, overnight disaster. It's just like you know, like we kind of said, like a montage of this guy's life. So it would almost be like, well, why am I watching this kind of thing? Like, what is the purpose behind telling the story? And I feel Mm -hmm. like potentially for me, the uh, the interspersed scenes of the you know what will eventually happen at the end of the movie like reminds you every now and then like, Oh yeah, I'm invested in this guy because I want to see what happens to him at the end because they are like teasing that something, you know, there's this, you know, situation that he's in. Mm -hmm. I think, I guess it could be just for me too. Like that, like the situation with like so much of the interspersed part is just like, he's kind of just crawling around. He's trying to break through that one wall. Like that stuff, just not that compelling to me where I feel like if they did more, Made the I don't, I don't want to necessarily say the stakes higher, but just what he what he's doing in that scene, and have that like backloaded at the end of the movie. I for me just would I know it would have made it better. Hmm. Yeah, it's just uh, hard. It's hard for me to imagine the movie like taking all of that uh, framing device and putting it chronologically at the very end. Oh, sure. Because I mean that's how you watched it. So of yeah, it's, it's, like, it's that's just harder for you to do. It's just hard to imagine like watching the slow progression of this guy's life and then just ending with the full on scene. But yeah, cause it would, for me, cause I was, cause along the, along the way, like he has a couple of his friends die, mm-hmm. which, and they both kind of, well, one, one dies and one gets burned, but they're both, it's kind of funny too. Cause they're both kind of like similar kind of things where there'll be one guy's like standing in one spot and then something happens real quickly. Yeah. You know, like the one guy falls through the ceiling and the next guy just like hears a sound and he gets hit by the steam pipe, you know, like <laughs> both situations. But with that is his wife is, you know, that build up of him, like her being worried for him. They have kids. He's like thinking like John Travolta might be able to get him like a cushy desk job. Like mm-hmm. I could just feel like almost like an anxiety building up that I would have liked better without the framing device because it would then it would have been like, you know, oh man, like. So see now he's in this giant structure fire after all that. Like, oh, how's this gonna turn out? Blah blah blah. And then he dies. And I was like, you know, that would have thrown you for a loop big time. <laughs> it does anyways, of course. Yeah, because like I said, I did not expect him to die. I thought yeah. for sure they were gonna save him. And I was like, oh my god, this is like yeah. way sadder and darker than I was expecting. Because yeah. like, yeah, because it makes it that way where I just think it would have even been like that more gut wrenching if it just played out chronologically. And then like the movie is, I think the, you know, the, the final scene with like his, his funeral, you know, like looking back on the kind of guy he is like, that's the point of the movie. Like you're saying like, why, why am I watching this? It's just to show him like being a good dude that still, you know, died doing what he loves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that I just, I couldn't help but feel that. I don't know if that's how I felt the first time I saw it. I really just don't remember, which may not be a great sign either. But <laughs> yeah. this time watching, I was just like, oh, I just would have just being like so chopped up. It was like already chopped up because it's like over the course of like 10 years of this guy's life. Mm-hmm. So it just made it even more like glaring to me when they, you know, cut in with scenes of kind of more or less him just kind of he's already got the broken leg and he can't really move and he's kind of crawling around like there's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So. I just, I could see myself, you know, if that was recut with just like drama Oof. and then the final. Triple threat fan edit. 
I like it. I like it already. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't want to dwell on that debate too much longer, but yeah, it's hard for me to imagine, you know, maybe it would work, but having seen it, having just watched it, it's like, I feel like it worked well and it's just tough to imagine it mm. the other way. But, um, you know, I think it goes to show that the, even without the interspersed stuff, the story is good and compelling and the performances are all good because I would be watching, you know, the meat of the movie and then all of a sudden it would cut back to him trapped in that burning building and I would be like, oh yeah, I forgot. So I was like actually really into it, into the actual story. And you know, the 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 plot and everything is pretty pedestrian. It's, you know, the kind of thing we've seen before, but it's all the little things, just, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's performance and like his friendship with different people over over time. Yeah. And that, there is a part of me that kept waiting for someone to turn out to be not like an arsonist kind of bad guy, but almost like the foil for him. But mm-hmm. the movie doesn't really need that because it's just a story about a guy's life and, you know, you're, mm-hmm. the movie ending with him dying and then looking back over his life. Like the whole movie is basically you're looking back over the life of this guy who died. You just didn't know he was dead until the end. Right. And I think, you know, just as a straight-up dramatic film, it, it works in that regard. And I did really like Joaquin Phoenix in it. Yeah, he's good. It's You know, it's nice to see him just in a kind of like a regular Joe kind of role, too. Mm-hmm. He's um, not an actor who I feel like I'm over the moon about in general. Uh, of mm-hmm. all things, <laughs> I know that some people will roll their eyes at this, but a movie that I've always really liked him in is The Village, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. <laughs> Oh yeah, and yeah, I really liked him in this too. That's do you very like that movie, character. The Village? Yeah, I do. Oh, okay. well, I do too. Oh, and most most people don't. So I did not know that. That's why we belong on this show together. That's true. I've only <laughs> seen it the one time. I would like to watch it again. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. We can make that happen. <laughs> yeah, not to yeah. go off on too much of a village tangent, sure, but sure. I I like The Sixth Sense. Okay, really like Unbreakable. Not a fan of Signs, and then I like The Village quite a bit. It's almost like how every other Star Trek movie people say is good. I'm mm. almost like that with Shyamalan. <laughs> nice. But, uh, but yeah, so back to um, Joaquin. I, I did think he did good in this. I did. I think just even throughout, even like how I felt about the framing thing, but even just I, I think I liked his kind of just more character moments more. I didn't like... I feel like firefighting should just be exciting. I think that's part of why I like backdraft anyways. It's just like those parts are exciting where I just don't, I wasn't, I didn't feel any excitement with like a lot of the firefighting in this one. Yeah. Well, I definitely think that whereas in backdraft, you are supposed to be excited. This, Mm -hmm. you're supposed to be more like, uh, you know, afraid and like for the characters and um, like respectful of fire as like a, yeah. A thing yeah, that... I could see that, but I, I, I don't think they were even like successful with getting any emotion from me out of like the fire. Well, they spend less time like in fires ha- in this movie, but yeah. there's parts like when Joaquin Phoenix goes into that building and and finds the girl, and then he's trapped in there with her, and then uh, Robert Patrick comes in with the axe and they bring mm-hmm. her out, and I legit thought that they had failed and she was going to die in the ambulance, and then she wakes up, and I don't know. There's there's parts where. The fire I mean, the, did it for me, I guess. That I'd like. I feel like because the when the the buddy falls through the 
the ceiling is like over and done with quick. I mean, it goes to like him dealing with the aftermath, but the actual scene there, that one, the weird, even like the buddy getting burned by the steam pipe is kind of like a random scene. I feel like, Mm -hmm. like to, to me, those even scenes feel like afterthoughts where I think they should be a little more. A little more intense. Well, yeah, either. I think the point of those scenes is just the result rather than, you know, reveling in the uh, the act, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, the whole point of those scenes is, oh, now, like, bad things happen to people that I know, and it's going to make me think a second time about, like, my life choices rather than yeah. in backdraft. It's all about, like, how exciting the <laughs> the fire scene is, you know? Yeah, I mean... This doesn't doesn't work for me in that regard. Drama versus action, man. I'm telling you, that's that's what we got here. <laughs> True, sure, but even just I don't know. It's just not it's not enough when it comes down to ladder forty nine. I feel like mm. like it could have been it could have been any scenario. Like it didn't have to be firefighting. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was not nothing was like he could have been a cop. He could have been a do I don't know a delivery driver. It could have been all the same <laughs> thing. So. I'd like to see that uh, Life of a Delivery Driver <laughs> yeah. movie. Another, another fan edit. Yeah. Well, that's going to take a little more than an edit. That's going to take a reshoot, <laughs> I think. Yeah. How do you feel about uh, your boy Travolta in this one? I guess he's fine. I don't know if like I love like older Travolta so much. Older as in like uh, further on in years? Yeah. Yes. Like to, you know post like 2000 or well let's have some real talk here oh please uh are there any movies you particularly think travolta is good in after pulp fiction no i mean uh, no because i think like it kind of goes downhill pretty quickly yeah i think we can say that pulp fiction is a fluke (laughs) is is broken arrow after pulp fiction (sighs) probably Probably. I think Pulp Fiction was, what, 94? Yeah, let me find out. Because I like him in uh, Broken Arrow, which is like, Broken Arrow could be like a, it's probably a guilty pleasure movie. But man, I love that flick. Is that uh, John Woo? Um, Yes. Yeah, it was uh, Pulp Fiction 94, Broken Arrow was 96. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was John Woo. Oh, yeah. As far as like a movie, I... Yeah, I mean, as far as the flu, I mean, still, he's like over the top and ridiculous in Broken Arrow. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I could roll with you on that. That is, in fact, a fluke. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I thought he was he was fine in this. He handled the role, you know, well enough. Yeah. I forget. I was reading that uh, somebody else was like circling the part and then Travolta came in with like a real interest after he read the script and the other person just kind of let it be. I can't remember who it was, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think Travolta brings a ton to it. Um, and I mean, I haven't seen like the early Travolta stuff, like Saturday Night Fever or anything. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, Pulp Fiction is like the standout for me. There's other movies that I like that maybe he's in. And you know, I like Broken Arrow, but it's definitely you loved a- him in Look. You loved him in Look Who's Talking too. Mm. True story. Nah. <laughs> nah, 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 son. Oh, um, phenomenon. You loved them in Phenomenon. I haven't seen Phenomenon. Uh, oh, man. Hold on. I got to make a quick note. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's nice to see Robert Patrick in a uh, in a non-villain role for a change. Always. Always. Yeah. 
Uh, he looks right at home in a like a t-shirt with a firefighter logo and that mustache. That mustache. Oh yeah, I concur. And uh, my boy Morris Chestnut is in there. Oh man, he's the dude who gets hit with the uh, the steam. She sure does. Um, he's just like a character actor. I like to see pop up and stuff. Oh yeah. Got a little bit of a gross facial appliance on mm-hmm. at one point in the hospital. Yeah, I you know, always love a good gross facial appliance. <laughs> <laughs> any any day. Uh-huh. <clears throat> a ditto. <laughs> yeah, anything. Well, I guess uh really quick I'll say watched this whole movie, didn't realize until the very end that it takes place in Baltimore. Really? Yeah. I'm pretty sure they say it right up front, so you must have missed Do they? it. Because I'm watching yeah. the movie, and, uh, you know, I'm not very well-traveled, but I'm watching the movie, and I want to say I'm, like, three-quarters of the way through it, and it's just eating away at me. I'm like, where where, do, where, where is this supposed to take place? Like, I'm just curious. So I pull mm-hmm. it up on, like, my phone, and it's like, oh, it takes place in Baltimore, really? <laughs> and then I started to notice once or twice I would see, like, Baltimore on, like, the back of someone's jacket, and then at the end of the movie, um, in his at his funeral, I think when they're carrying out his casket, there's like a this thing draped over it with a Baltimore Fire Department logo on it that I've mm-hmm. seen before, and I'm like, okay, I I recognize that. Now you know I don't live in Baltimore, but I've been there a number of times because uh, I live nearby. I don't remember any real landmarks or anything that made me realize it was Baltimore the whole time. I remember looking, but as far as landmarks, I wouldn't know nearly as good as you, but a lot of the homes, like those row houses are throughout the whole thing. Yeah, but I mean, like for me, like, okay, I've spent some time in Baltimore, but again, I've never been to Chicago or like a bunch of other cities. Like that could have been another city to me. Like, yeah, because it's not like they showed the inner harbor at any point, like something Mm -hmm. I would recognize. But um. The one thing is uh, the mayor in the movie was, at the time, the actual mayor of Baltimore, Martin O'Malley. Oh, no way. Yeah. So that jumped out at me. I mean, I don't even know because, like you said, like Chicago or other towns, I don't even know. But I always thought like row houses were like those. that style was pretty specific to Baltimore. Mm. Again, who knows if that's actually true? I mean, it very well maybe. That's the only thing I, I, that's the only thing I noticed like throughout the movie. I was like, oh, yeah, it looks like those kind of neighborhoods mm-hmm. bombed through before. <laughs> yeah. Budget on this one sixty million and box office one oh two. So right. made uh, made some decent money. Mm-hmm. How did this cost sixty million though? Like when you look at Backdraft, and Backdraft was a, like a little over a decade earlier, but that was movie was more like I feel like effects and like more intense yeah. fires and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they actually torched a textile factory in Backdraft, <laughs> so that's got to cost a pretty penny. Well, apparently the um like the framing sequence in this movie uh where oh. he's trapped in like that warehouse or whatever, mm-hmm. that was like a real building that they set on fire and I was reading a tidbit about this that uh the fire was visible from I95 and so People were like inundating emergency services with calls reporting a fire. Jesus. And then, uh, like, somebody, I forget who it was, had to like go on the news and say, like, mm-hmm. yes, there's a fire, but it's for a movie. Please stop calling and tying wow. up emergency services lines. Can you imagine like a movie lighting something on fire that? I know. It's, it's like I was surprised crazy. to hear that they actually lit a tall building on fire. 
for like a sustained burn, I guess, because, you know, there's a fair amount of the movie that takes place there since it's that long intercut, you know, sequence throughout Mm -hmm. the film. Um, You know, conversely, I don't feel like it was the easiest to tell, except for scenes where people were interacting with the outside of the building, like falling out of it or whatever, but uh, or the scenic elevator. But in uh, in uh, the towering inferno, there were some shots where it was an actual building with a matte painting that added like 50 floors to the top of it. But the majority of the film, it was like either a model uh, or a matte painting all shot from like low angles. So you never yeah. saw like the ground and they didn't have to composite in like people and cars at the bottom or whatever. But I thought, mm-hmm. you know, it looked pretty convincing. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, I would have 100% guessed in 2004 that like the like the fire was CG in in those sequences in Ladder 49. Yeah, I would have guessed so too. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so anything else uh, about Ladder 49? No. I'm ready to talk these posters. All right. Let's talk these posters. Towering Inferno. Towering Inferno poster is so 70s. It is glorious. It's very busy. Very busy. Lots of words. Yeah. Uh, honestly. Lots of diagonal photos. <laughs> I just wish that uh, the poster was, like, more centrally focused on the uh, the painting of the building it on should, fire. It should be just that. Yeah, with maybe, maybe one you know, or two inset actor heads or something if they really wanted to. Yeah. Or even like the strip of actors at the bottom and just put the other two guys in that strip and have that at the bottom of the painting would be awesome. Mm-hmm. With the logo, like down in like the lower quadrant there. Yeah. That would have been awesome. Because it's a cool ass painting. Oh, big time. Yeah. Man, there is a lot of text. One tiny spark becomes a night of blazing suspense. It's like... Mm-hmm. I don't know, a tagline like that, like, do you really need to sell me on the movie? Like, just that image of a fucking burning building and all the helicopters and stuff would do it just fine. Like, I didn't need... It it doesn't need that line, nor does it need the other one. The tallest building in the world is on fire. You are there with 294 other guests. There's no way down. There's no way out. (laughs) Mind you, that one's in, like, a different font. Or same font, but in lowercase. The other one's all uppercase, like... That you got two floating heads that are fighting to be which one's like higher than the other. Yeah, so ridiculous. And then you got the characters along the bottom, but they're just like they're not the actors' names. It's the what the characters are: the mm-hmm. builder, the wife, the son-in-law. You know, like there's just so much. This could be simplified so easily. Mm-hmm. Now I'm gonna have to recut this poster, Millsy. This episode's <laughs> all about recuts. <laughs> Everything's a remix, baby. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. It would have been better if it was just the painting, but I don't I don't necessarily hate this. I mean, I feel like all the photos of the actors and a lot of text is indicative of the time. Yeah, for sure. This is very 70s. But yeah. man, that, that painting is awesome. Fuck yeah, it is. Really? Then Backdraft. This one, I feel like, you know, I've only seen the movie twice now, but this is like a recognizable, iconic image. Yeah, for sure. The silhouette I mean, any, of the firefighter walking in front of the blaze. Mm-hmm. Anytime, like, there's not, there doesn't, I mean, top billing with names, sure, that's always going to be there. But just anytime, it doesn't have to be, like, an actor's face, mm-hmm. like, close up. I always like that. So that makes me really enjoy this poster. Yeah, I would even say, like, you know, as a detriment to this one, we don't need the fucking text. No, I was just going to say the same thing. That was unnecessary. Silently behind a door, it waits. One breath of oxygen, and it explodes in a deadly rage. 
In that instance, it can create a hero or cover a secret. Right. And it's like, once you see that list of names, you don't need to read that. Yeah. You just got to see that. I mean, like you see a firefighter, you see the fire. So what if people don't know what a backdraft is before they see the movie? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Or even that there's a secret to cover. I feel like you're going to get that from a trailer. What they've basically done here is put a plot synopsis in text on the poster. When the whole idea of the poster is the image should sell it based on Mm -hmm. a visual that's representative of the film on its own. This is like a prime kind of example. I feel like when like maybe like one team is working on the poster and other teams is working on the marketing of the trailer, like, you know, have the trailer do that thing where the poster doesn't need to do that. Keep it simple. Yeah. Like if you want to have a catchy tagline and it's not too wordy, like, uh, I don't know, uh, aliens, the tagline was this time it's war or mm-hmm. alien in space. No one can hear you scream cool tagline it's not a it's not a synopsis or anything it's just like a little line that can get stuck in your head but still the focus is the imagery and i mean as small as the text is on here at a glance you're not going to read all that shit like why even no, put it God, there? No. <laughs> yeah just lose it no. yeah I mean, the rest of it's good though so the fire like almost looks like the punisher logo does it not it does it does it's <laughs> like if this is like a yeah Rorschach test, I'm like I see the Punisher, maybe a bird of some kind. <laughs> Definitely looks like it has eyes. Yeah, I agree. But uh, anyway, ladder forty nine, boy, this couldn't be more boring. <laughs> I mean, it's just dull. It's just dull. Yeah, it's two headshots like, with it, some text yeah, in the middle. It's it's like see this movie because of these guys. Mm-hmm. Even then, they, and it has a tagline: "A bond forged by fires, never broken." <laughs> Which. Is like corny, and I don't even know if I would necessarily like they have a bond that's forged in the movie. You like, you know, like, no, sure, there, there is, but it doesn't feel like it would be those two. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like he's he takes like you know his buddy's death like much more harder, but of course John Travolta's John Travolta, so he's got to be on top, and <laughs> you know he's got to be in there. But yeah, it's just like I was just saying by having actors' faces, you know, front and center. Which is this is another bad example of that. Mm-hmm. Painfully dull. Yeah, there's got to be some kind of image that they could have produced that would have been more interesting than this. I mean, yeah, put Travolta just like in his desk with the, you know his pants are missing and he's drunk. I mean, that was, <laughs> the be- that was a better scene. <laughs> Might misrepresent the, movie, the film, but it's still uh, <laughs> still more interesting than this. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I'm. Uh, I'll still I'll still give it to you backdraft for me as the best one because Towering Inferno I love the painting but the rest of it just makes me too anxious mm-hmm. and uh, Ladder Forty Nine is just everything bad about yeah. modern posters. I'd say a four alarm fire for backdraft, three alarm fire for <laughs> yes. Towering Inferno, and one alarm yes. for Ladder Forty Nine. Perfect. <laughs> We get yeah, you know, we've gotten uh young Megan has put in requests for more uh off the cuff ranking, ranking system. systems. <laughs> yeah, so I like that you brought that back. Thank you, sir. <laughs> My pleasure. All right, Milzy. Yeah. Time to uh buy, borrow, and wink wink burn. Oh. Time for you to boil my blood with your picks. Go for it. How apropos. Uh <laughs> I am going to buy towering inferno because i just think it's for me it was the most like entertaining just like fun and interesting to watch it's just like a spectacle 
like as big and epic of a movie as it is with the 1970s, you know, effects work mm-hmm. and everything and just the recognizable faces and Paul Newman and Steve McQueen running around and Faye Dunaway in there for good measure. Uh, I just found that movie very enjoyable and I had been looking forward to seeing it for a while and it didn't disappoint. So I'm going to be buying that one. Uh, you probably already see the writing on the wall here. Well, I don't hate backdraft by any means. It just, uh, I don't know. I was kind of left very middle of the road on it. It didn't like, I feel like most people probably like it more than me. It just, you know, I, I enjoyed the first half, second half soured it a little bit for me. It's fine, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to burn that one. I'm gonna have to, uh, set a backdraft secretly on that one. Unbelievable. And then Ladder 49, you know, the... Um, What's more middle of the road than Ladder 49, Millsy? <laughs> the framing device of Ladder 49 notwithstanding, uh, I just, like I said, when I was watching Backdraft, I kind of was losing interest by the second half for whatever reason. Ladder 49, I liked Joaquin Phoenix's performance a lot. And while not the most like mind-blowing movie ever... Uh, I was just like invested in his story the whole time. It's just like pretty middle of the road story, but just very well made and very well acted and just uh, pretty satisfying. The one thing I really did not like about Ladder 49 was that fucking horrible, like over sentimental patriotic song that they play at the end that just like overtakes the mm. whole thing. It's it just feels like it's one step away from being some like shitty country song that somebody would win American Idol singing or something. It's <laughs> just a guy with like a gravelly voice and it's just supposed yeah. to feel like kind of macho but sad. Like men can cry too. And I uh-huh. just oh I fucking hated the vibe that that song gave the end of the yeah. movie. It's just like Actually, I- mm. I wrote down, I don't remember why exactly, but I just wrote down that a lot of the, I didn't like the music throughout the whole thing, mm. like even the score. That's but the only yes, one that stands out to me. <laughs> I do remember that one being pretty bad. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, John Williams did the score for Towering Inferno, didn't he? He did. Yeah. I don't remember specifically the music, but, uh, you know. No, thought it was cool I saw, saw that, that though, too. Yeah, man. So, yeah, officially, I am uh, buying Towering Inferno. I am borrowing Ladder 49, and I am, you know, sort of reluctantly burning Backdraft. Mm. It's going to get a light singe. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say, uh, it's, you know, it's it's been a good bit since we've been just completely different. So <laughs> I am going to buy Backdraft. This is, you could easily say, probably this is one of those ones I say I've loved for a long time, but I, I still do. It's been a while since I watched it. It still checks a lot of boxes for me. I I find it compelling. I like the actors. I like the story. I like the special effects. And yeah, I'm a, unapologetically a big fan of that movie. I don't condemn I, you for that. That's... Thank you, sir. Well, I don't condemn you for your light singe, so. <laughs> yeah. I will borrow Towering Inferno. Uh, good time, you know. It's a. It feels like a very interesting movie that you don't. There can't be a lot of examples of this kind of movie. I don't know, but I have to do the research. But it was a. It was a good experience to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily feel like I'd have to see it again. 
I'm not sure how like bad there's anything. I pop on again down the road, just like give it a little revisit. Well, when I revisit you in Maryland, we can revisit it, and I'd be perfectly fine. But I don't know if <laughs> I, need, I need to do it myself. We're going to get together just to watch the Tower of Inferno. <laughs> right, again. And then, so that means I will, in fact, not use the fire extinguisher and let Ladder 49 burn, burn, burn. <laughs> Like I kind of said, I think there's probably there's probably a good edit of in the, of it in there that I would like more, or maybe even a fascinating reshoot with a delivery driver. <laughs> but yeah, for me, it just does it doesn't uh, it doesn't work in the way I just, I feel like it could have. Hmm. I I'm not generally one to always be like, oh, I could do this better, or this should be made this way. But this was one of those movies where pretty early on, I just wasn't. I wasn't feeling the the edit, and that just kind of carried all the way through. Mm. So that's how it goes. That's the way the cookie crumbles. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, all right. Now that that's out there, (laughs) one episode left this season before we take ourselves another little hiatus. Yes, sir. Why don't we find out what the final episode of uh, season two of Triple Threat Theater holds in store for us? Here we go, Mills. We have 200 possible trios. 200. Yeah. Unbelievable. Here we go. Millsy? Yeah. 175. We're getting up there. Oh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. All right. We're going to send season two off with a bang, (laughs) my friend. I don't know if we'll make it back to season three after this one. Oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, Theme for episode 24 of Triple Threat Theater is big in Japan. Jeez. Definitely, definitely looking forward to this. Uh, How am I even going to get my hands on these movies? (laughs) Well, uh, Triple Threat will find a way. We'll talk. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, boy. Oh, hey. This uh, this is as good a season ender as we could have picked ourselves, I think. Oh, this is going to be... This is going to be something else. That's all I can say. <clears throat> Big in Japan. Wild in the streets. Yep. All right. Well, uh, until next time when we find out what Big in Japan means, <laughs> I'm Ryan Miller. And I am Joe Daxberger. Thanks for watching. That was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, 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 happy.